From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Ellie Fumbi wrote, produced, and directed her first feature film, which premiered at the Venice International Film Festival in 2021. Our Father the Devil went on to the Tribeca Film Festival, the Santa Barbara Film Festival, and eventually came to Kukaloras in November 2022. It was nominated for a Spirit Award for Best Feature. The Tribeca Film Festival describes the film as an intense and fearless dissection of trauma, power, revenge, guilt, and the devils hiding within all of us, calling the performances by the film's leads Oscar-worthy. Filmmaker Ellie Fumbi has directed an episode of Tales for BET after earning her MFA in directing from Columbia University. She has several films in development, has written a Western, is adapting a book into a screenplay, and she's an actor as well. And she joins me now. Ellie Fumbi, welcome to Coastline. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you with us. Our Father the Devil screens at Django's Playhouse on Friday, April 7th. 2023. Ellie Fumbi, you told a reporter for Veronica Beard that you come from a very conservative African family and your plan was to go to law school. So so <laughs> what happened? How did you get from Cameroon to directing film at Columbia University? I still wonder that myself, but um, you know, I've I fell in love with film very early on um, from the time I was four or five, really. I, it became my outlet. I think moving to a new country and, and trying to navigate <clears throat> new spaces became, it was challenging as, as, a, as a, a young girl. And I, I felt a comfort in storytelling and it really spurred my imagination. And it's something that stayed with me through my adolescence and I it was a dream but it but it I didn't know anyone in the industry and I didn't have anyone to look up to to show me that it was a possible career and I just accidentally fell into acting after college and that was my first exposure to being on set to being around crew members to kind of getting a close-up look at what a career in the arts or at least a career in film might look like and um, I was bitten by the bug, and I, I haven't looked back since. <laughs> when did your family come here, come to the U.S. from Cameroon? Um, it was in the 80s, and um, we, we didn't have a TV back in Cameroon, or at least if we had one, I think there was like one channel on it, and it mostly played the news. So I remember I was about four, five, I think, when we moved, and... I remember distinctly that I never looked at that box in our living room in Cameroon. And then when we arrived in the States, it was, it was, uh, it was incredible. The, the images that were coming through and the stories and, and at that age, I couldn't tell if it was real or not. And so I think that that kind of fantastical element and just my curiosity was completely uh, opened up and uh, I, I fell in love with the possibility of stories and, and everything that I saw. You said that you 
you fell into acting after college? How I did. did. How did that happen? What was your first experience? My it? sister, who knew that I loved film pretty much my whole life, it's all I did. I, I spent all my time watching films. She saw a, a, a casting call for a role, um, and it was a young woman, an asylum seeker, who uh, was was who had arrived in the U.S. illegally and took it upon herself to call the the director um, and to tell him that I was the perfect person to play this part. Mind you, I had never acted in my life. I didn't even have a headshot or a resume. And then, and this was in Philadelphia. She was studying um, at Temple University at the time, and I thought she was crazy, but. There was something about her doing that, and suddenly she said, well, I I got you an audition, so what do you want to do? You've been talking about this forever, and you spend all your time watching movies, so this is your chance. Like, go go and audition. And, um, and for, you know, they'd been looking for someone for a long time, so they were kind of desperate and said, you know what? You don't have a resume, but come on in. And I, I, I did, and somehow... I don't really know what happened in that audition except that I became this character suddenly as I memorized my sides and I, I was terrified because I had this huge camera staring at me in the face and and I was so nervous and the person who was reading opposite me was so kind and said, you know what, just focus on me. Don't worry about the camera. Don't worry about the other people in the room. Just focus on me. And that's what I did. And suddenly I was having a dialogue as this young woman. Um, I was 21 at the time. So it was, uh, or 20, actually, I, I don't even think I'd graduated from college yet. And, and it, I, I, I was, I was unaware of what was happening inside of me. And after the audition, they were like, Okay, thank you so much. I left. And I, I just was like, this is the most incredible experience ever. Uh, I don't know what just happened, but I know that I want to keep doing it. And that was what kind of encouraged me to, and I ended up booking that job actually. So, <laughs> which was crazy. I booked that job and, and that director encouraged me to, to keep studying and, and that's what I did. And we'll go back to talk about uh, some of your acting perhaps later in this discussion. Mm. I want to get to Our Father, the Devil, this yeah. film that screened at Kukaloris in November 2022. I said to you in an email, uh, this was my favorite film at Kukaloris. Am I allowed to say that on the air? Um, (laughs) I think so. (laughs) But I also, um, and this is unusual, haven't been able to stop thinking about it Mm. and about the questions that it raises and about the incredible acting. and so I want to hear about how you worked with the actors and how you happened upon this story. But let's let's tell listeners about the basic plot first. Mm-hmm. So Marie, she's an, an African Rwandan refugee. She's actually not Rwandan, and I and and it's my fault because in the many times I've talked about the inception of this idea, I reference my father's work in Rwanda. But it was really just a beginning for me to start exploring the lives of child soldiers. It's not actually about Rwandans. Mm -hmm. And so in the film, I sort of keep it deliberately ambiguous where she's from because I'm not really referencing a specific civil war. 
but she's from West Africa, I would say. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's... And so she's become a chef in this kind of small, idyllic mountain town where she's she's the chef for folks in a retirement home. Yes. And her mentor, one of the home's residents, has taught her chef skills. Yes. and, And also winds up giving her a mountain cabin. She knows she's... This woman isn't long for this world. She's dying, I guess. Yeah, so at least she's not in the best health. Yeah. Yeah, and and instead of passing it along to her own family, she gives it to Marie. Yes. One day a priest arrives. The residents love him. He's popular and inspiring. And um, can you just tell us what happens? Marie's first, the first time she hears his voice as she walks down the hall to hear him speaking to a group of residents. She, Marie is taken back to the voice of someone that she, that she knew a long time ago who terrorized or at least terrorized her village and, um, and ended up, uh, recruiting her as a child to join a militia. And in my research, um, I, I discovered that a lot of people who were traumatized in a specific way, like sounds and voices and those are the things that kind of remain in the memory and and so just hearing that voice triggers her again and she's just shocked and can't believe that this person is in this same town that she happens to find herself in so there's a sense of is is it real is is it really him or am i just projecting what i feel onto this onto this man and I and the film kind of proceeds in a way where we're not really sure if Marie is correct in her assumption that this is indeed this man. And that is such an a, a challenging line I would think to walk for a mm. filmmaker and for an actor. The the man who plays uh Father Patrick. Yes. The character's name. How do you find that balance between making sure that he appears like he could have the capacity for that depth of darkness. But he also has these moments of where he just seems like, you know, a shining, beneficent presence. How, how, how do you walk that line? I mean, kudos to my actor, Suleiman Seysavane, who's brilliant. And we had a lot of discussions early on about where he comes from and how he arrives to this town and 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 really, a lot of the work that that I did with both uh, um, Babiti Dasaje, who plays Marie, and Suleiman, was kind of retracing the backstory of the characters and figuring out exactly what happened back in Africa and how they each get to this moment where they happen to meet. And I think for Suleiman, um, I said to to for 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 Suleiman, excuse me, um, it was really a question of like examining, you know where he's at spiritually and if he has been trying to pull his life together and and he's a priest now so i said you've constructed this really um this this new life and it's it's very fragile because it's based on this new identity and this new work that you're doing right and, and 
Yeah. And we'll we'll explore more of this when we come back from this break. You're listening to Coastline. Filmmaker Ellie Fumbi is my guest today. After this short break, we'll also find out how she deals with intimacy and nudity with actors on screen. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Our Father the Devil is Ellie Fumbi's first feature film. She wrote, directed, and produced the film, which takes place in southern France in the small mountain town of Luchon. The story centers on Marie, an African refugee who's made a life for herself as a chef at a retirement home until the man who may have slaughtered her family and imprisoned her arrives at the retirement home as a popular, well-liked Catholic priest, Father Patrick. Our Father the Devil screens at Django's Playhouse on Friday, April 7th, 2023. And Ellie Fumbi, just before we went to break, you were explaining how you worked with the actors to help develop the background of these two characters. Yeah, I feel like uh, in order to explain or justify the actions that they take in the present, you really have to understand where they're coming from and how you got to this point. And so with both Babatita Sajo and Suleiman C. Savanay, um, who played Marie and Father Patrick respectively, um, we spend a lot of time retracing those roots and, um, and, and I think discovering the different ways in which they're coping with their trauma. And I think Father Patrick has sort of put a lot of things behind him, put the past behind him completely in order to transform into this new benevolent, caring priest that we meet. While I think Marie's character is visibly still struggling with the the PTSD. And I think they both are, but they're showing it differently. Yeah. I just wonder, is, is there any risk with actors when you're exploring this level of trauma, Mm. is there any risk of traumatizing the actors? And how do you Mm. hold them during this process? That's such a good question because we, I mean, now onset therapists are, are kind of commonplace. At the time when we shot this, it was during the pandemic. So we didn't really have that luxury. And if I had had those resources and been able to bring on someone I think that we definitely would have because it's really difficult subject matter but we had so many conversations again these are actors Suleiman and I have known each other for many many years had worked on many projects together so I think it's critical as a director to build trust with your actors particularly when you're exploring this kind of subject matter and to keep you know a, a constant flow of dialogue so that, you know, they can stop and say, hey, I'm not okay, and we can address whatever's happening. Did you ever have to do that? 
yourself? Um, I mean, was there ever a moment? Yes, they many went? times, many times, especially uh, in some of the scenes in the cabin, we had to pause because it was so raw um, and difficult for all of us. I, I even felt guilt. It was the first time in my life as a director that I had felt guilt. Um, but I, I also, I understood, and I think the actors understood that we were in service of something greater than ourselves and that it was important to tell the story as difficult as it was. You talk about wanting to explore the effect of war-torn, civil war, basically, mm -hmm. on, on child soldiers. Mm -hmm. And you raise questions about, you know, you, you told Wilson Morales, I think, of BlackFilmAndTV.com that uh, there were plenty of films that sort of had child soldiers in them as mm -hmm. part of a conflict, but there weren't really films that wanted to explore who those kids became in life after the conflict. Most of the films you said were about the conflict itself and how the kids were recruited, Yeah, but can they put their lives back together? And I think that question is just one of the most profound human questions you can ask because it's a question for any human absolutely, <laughs> who's experienced trauma. But you go to this place that is so dark and kind of say, can you ever come back from the unforgivable? Is the unforgivable ever actually forgivable? Yeah. I, and, and it's funny because as I, when I started my quest to answer this question, I really didn't have a clue what I was getting myself into. I went down this, this very dark, I knew that it was going to be um, not easy and, um, and that I was going to explore subject matter that made me very sad and uncomfortable. But I felt that, and I feel that this is my duty as a storyteller is to to sort of do the heavy lifting for audiences, to expose them to stories in a way that they might not have been exposed to previously and to make them think about issues from a completely different place. And because I hadn't seen, I mean, all of these films were about children and the, how they're recruited, like, like you said. Um, my thoughts were always going to, how did, how do you, how do you ever, you know, how do you have a normal life after this? Is it even possible? And so, yeah, it, it was a, a very difficult road to excavating the story properly. Yeah. And so we have one clip, <laughs> just because the film is in French. Yes. And so there are subtitles for uh, English-speaking audiences. And... Um, we did sort of cobble this scene together uh, because there are some, there's an approach that you took mm. to some of the darker elements of the story. And in this particular scene, our um, lead character, Marie, thinks, thinks that she has just confirmed that Father Patrick is in fact the warlord who yes. tortured her. And she says to him in the beginning of this scene, um, commandment number one, a weak body cannot do God's work. Is that is that the translation? That is correct. And it's and basically she's reenacting um, the trauma that he put her through when she was in his captivity. Okay, let's listen. Commandement numéro one. 
Un corps faible ne peut pas répondre à l'appel de Dieu. Part of the film, Our Father, the Devil, mm-hmm. written, produced, and directed by Ellie Fumbi, who is my guest today on Coastline. Ellie Fumbi, you took a really clever and beautiful approach to filming this scene, creating the sense of torture mm-hmm. without filming anything particularly graphic or grisly. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what people are seeing as we hear the music and we hear him scream. Yeah, I mean, almost from the very beginning, I knew that I wanted to remain in a psychological place because a lot of the trauma, it, it's in the body, it's in the mind. And it's, it's, I felt that there was no need for us to, um, to show it because you understand so clearly you know, where Marie is, or even if you don't understand exactly where she's coming from, you understand the the level of, you start to understand the relationship between her and this, the, this man, um, Sogo, which is, which is the, his past name. And, and you start to kind of, through seeing her simulations and the, the, um, the ways in which she's reenacting what happened to her in her past, you start to understand where she's coming from emotionally and psychologically. And for me, um, and also with my collaborators, we, we realized that that was just a much more powerful way to, to reveal what happened to her. Yeah. And you have, I mean, she's a chef. Yes. And so appropriately, you have her in the kitchen yeah. pounding out pieces of meat into very thin <laughs> I don't know, is it paillard or what? Whatever, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is symbolic, I guess, for what she's doing to him. And it it was brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, it was just the way you depicted that um, gave us the, the horror and at the same time didn't engage in, you know, anything gratuitous. And yeah. speaking of that, so... You have a love scene in which the actors are partially nude. And mm-hmm. um, before we talk about how you filmed this scene, can you explain what this love scene meant to the lead character, Marie? Why was this so yeah. important? It was critical because uh, she was raped while she was in captivity. And this is something that is revealed much later in the film. And... And I think for her to reclaim her body as a woman, her femininity, and also to allow another man into her physical space, it was, it's one of the obstacles that she has early on in the film when she's being wooed by this very good looking and charming bartender. And she's just unable to engage with him because of this trauma that she sustained. And for me, the love scene is the beginning of that wall falling, and it was so critical to 
allow her to, yeah, to reclaim that side of herself as a woman. Yeah. I mean, you even show in early in the film, there's a scene when she's getting out of her car mm-hmm. and it's it's nighttime and she hears footsteps behind her. Yeah. And she turns around and she winds up whipping around and pulling a knife on this guy and then apologizing. Can can you yeah. just talk about that's part of her part of her trauma? But yeah. I also thought, well, <laughs> it's part of being female. Yeah. Too. Absolutely. Like we're all prey. I mean, yeah. every time we get out of the car, we're looking around for that guy. Totally. And, I mean, especially if it's nighttime and you're in a dark alley and you're alone and you hear footsteps behind you, that's never, it's very unsettling um, to feel that vulnerable. And so just as you said, as a woman, it's a it's a very vulnerable place to be. But I think when you add her trauma to it, there's an ins- there's almost an, ins- an instinctive um, uh, desire to protect herself because, you know, she's been there many times before. Yeah. So going back to this love scene that Marie mm-hmm. has with Arnaud, mm-hmm. you, there's some partial nudity. And mm-hmm. as a woman, you are, and an actor yourself, you're probably very aware of objectification of actors on screen. So t- yes. talk us through how you decided to film this, why you decided um, to have nudity, and mm-hmm. sort of how, how you worked that through, and was there an intimacy coordinator? Yeah, so we, uh, it's a conversation I had with Babitita, my actress, right from the beginning. Um, and we talked about the importance of that scene. And part of it is the, the placement of where her scar is. And I think that any woman, if you have anything on an intimate part of your body, particularly the parts that make us feel like a woman, your breasts, it's, it, it makes it even harder for you to want to be intimate with a man. And so she has this scar in the, in, on her breastbone that was important for us to show. And so for me, and, and, and Babatita agreed, it wasn't sort of a gratuitous showing of her body. It was, it was important for her to accept this being revealed as she's opening herself up to this man and showing her scar to the world essentially for the first time um and we we were able to work very closely um to kind of rehearse very closely with the other actor frank who plays uh arno um and there was a very safe environment created to sort of map out what this love scene i mean it was choreographed and so it was very safe and they felt really comfortable to to let their guards down. And I think by the time we got to set, they were more comfortable than we were, which was nice. <laughs> and it seemed like in part of it anyway, there, the camera was sort of following, was it at handheld following them around? Yes. How, it was so close. And I was thinking, yeah. oh my gosh, they're, they're in a love scene and the camera has to be just inches from uh, them. Very quick, funny story. The first take we did the camera was shaking. <laughs> and I called out to my DP, Tinks Chan. I said, Tinks, are you okay? <laughs> and he was so nervous. And it took like, I think one or two, two more takes for him to settle in and to be okay with, but they were fine. They were so, you know, it was just him. We, we kept it a closed set. So 
it was really just him and the sound and the AC who were in that room with the actors. But I found that to be really funny and the actors thought it was really charming and kind of teased him about it afterwards. That's really sweet. Yeah. Then, yeah, I imagine you would also feel safer with someone who is that sensitive to it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Your actors, uh, one of the things that I also uh, really loved about this film from the opening scene where she's sitting in a bar cafe where mm-hmm. Arnaud, her love interest, is the bartender. Mm-hmm. He comes over and offers her more cup. The second he steps into frame, he is full. He's so full mm-hmm. with what looks like love. I don't know. It, <laughs> it, and, and all of your actors, you see this. Like the woman who plays Nadia, her mm-hmm. best friend. Mm-hmm. She's, there's a scene when she just steps into frame and she's just full of grief. Mm. And she tells Marie, she's, or I'm not sure about the dialogue here, but yeah. she's not pregnant. And yes. you already you see that. I mean, how did you film that? Did you, how do you start your actors down the process so that by the time they step into frame, it, it's that rich? It really starts in the prep. It's, it's in, I'm a big believer of building detailed backstories of each character and even if you're coming on screen for two seconds even if it's for I did this with all of every actor in the film um and I feel like them just having this richer emotional background of who their their characters are where they're coming from what their personal issues are this is what helps to fill in that life and to start to make them feel three-dimensional and and for me it it's the only way to work there's a scene in which marie's mentor jean mm-hmm. the woman who taught her mm-hmm. cooking skills and gave her the mountain cabin says to her everyone deserves a second chance mm-hmm. do you believe this like I in do. this case in this case i do i think everyone who wants to change deserves an opportunity to change, deserves an opportunity to do better. That's my belief. And I know that that's hard for some people given certain crimes that are being committed. But I think if someone really wants to change, they should be given the opportunity to. You you explore forgiveness in this film on, mm. on so many levels, not just, you know, whether Father Patrick deserves forgiveness but also what the what unforgiveness mm-hmm. does to Marie absolutely even though she's living in this gorgeous french mountain town she's yeah. still a prisoner of the warlords until Abs- she works through the, the trauma absolutely and and i don't know who said this but i think it's so accurate forgiveness is for you it's not for the other person yeah I, that always stuck with me. Yeah, it's and it's just such a powerful lesson. Mm-hmm. I, somebody, I think on IMDb, this film is labeled a thriller, and yes. maybe because you don't know if he'll die or if she'll die or what's going to happen. Um, but it's, I don't know. It's so interesting because it does raise these much deeper questions. It doesn't strike me as, I guess that's the film genre. Um, but the space that you hold for all of this pain. You are listening to Coastline. Ellie Fumbi 
is my guest today. After this short break, we'll find out what's next for Ellie in her directing and writing career. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Ellie Fumbi is a filmmaker, director, writer, actor, producer. Her first feature, Our Father the Devil, premiered at the Venice International Film Festival, has gone on to Tribeca Film Festival, Santa Barbara Film Festival, and Wilmington's own Kukaloras Film Festival, where it screened in November 2022. The film was also nominated for a Spirit Award for Best Feature that year. Our Father the Devil screens at Django's Playhouse on Friday, April 7th, 2023. And Ellie Fumbi, uh, just to, to put a button on the story of Our Father the Devil, Father Patrick, when, when he's trying to talk his way out of his imprisonment, Marie mm. has tied him up in the cabin mm. so he can't escape, and he says basically... We all have a past. I mean, he puts on kind of the persona of of the priest and mm-hmm. says, we all have a past. The warrior you're carrying in your heart won't change the past. It won't soothe your pain. Is this, is this a trick? Does Father Patrick really believe this, or is this new life just a way of leaving behind his own past? Has he genuinely changed? I get asked this a lot. I bet. <laughs> and I, 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 I never want to answer it because I think it, the answer lies within the viewer. Um, whether they believe what they've been watching for the last you know, hour and a half is indeed genuine or whether they think that he's still trying to you know, pull a trick on her. Um, I have my feelings about it and I, 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 I I do give him a lot more grace maybe than some people do, but um, I do think he's trying to change. And whether he's absolutely changed or not, I think it is up to the audience to decide. Yeah. And the actor who plays Father Patrick, Suleiman C. Savane, am I mispronouncing his name? That's that's correct, C. Savane. C. Savane. Suleiman C. Savane, born in Cote d'Ivoire. Mm-hmm. West Africa. He played basketball in Africa and Paris, worked as a runway model <laughs> for Issey Miyake, and was a flight attendant. So he did a lot of things. He oh, speaks yeah. four languages. Um, yeah. So genius, brilliant actor, obviously. English, French, Mandingo. Mm-hmm. And was Mandingo the language his character speaks? That's correct. Yeah. So how... How do you know him? You mentioned earlier you've known him for years. Yeah. Suleiman and I were actually cast in a short film together, and we played opposite each other. And I was already aware of his work because he, 
who was in a brilliant film called Goodbye Solo by Ramin Barani. I think it was out in 2011 or 2012. I might hopefully close to when it was. And he, it, it was an, a, a performance that garnered rave reviews and he was nominated for an Indie Spirit Award and a Gotham Award. And so I was, I was aware of his work and was quite surprised actually when we were on this short, this was 2015 when we met, I was quite surprised that he wasn't doing more, didn't have more opportunities. But I was also very aware as a woman of color that, you know, there are just not as many roles for us, especially back then. Things have really changed in the industry uh, now and the push for diversity is a lot more robust than it was even, you know, six, seven, eight years ago. Uh, so it, one of the reasons I wanted to develop this role for him was to give him an opportunity to, to show how amazing he is. Yeah. And the woman who plays Marie, Babatita Saja. Saja. So she graduated from the Royal Dramatic Conservatory in Brussels. She's also a writer and director. She is brilliant in this film. I mean, the Tribeca Film Festival describing their performances as Oscar worthy. Yes, I very much agree. How did you find her? By Batita, um, we have a mutual friend in common who um, starred in a film uh, with her back in 2014, and he sent me the trailer of the movie, and I just saw a scene of her where she didn't even speak. She just turned to the camera, and her face, her eyes, her expression, I just became absolutely enamored by her, and I I was like, who is that? <laughs> and... Um, and and he, yeah, and, and he was like, she's incredible. And, and I knew I wanted to work with her. And then he put us in contact. And that's how we connected. Yeah. You told a reporter that you're, you're always interested in dealing with identity yeah. in some way. What does that mean to you in, in this film? Mm. And then I'll ask you about what you're working on next. Yeah, I think, you know, and it's not even something that's conscious anymore. I think it's always underneath my work, characters, you know, there's a fascination with characters who are trying to find themselves in some way, shape, or form. And I think for Marie, it's how does she create a new, um, how does she allow herself to be present in the new reality that she's in, in this small town in France? How does she let go of the past? And, and, and how does she not let the past define who she is? Um, I think that, that was really interesting to me. And it's really the same question for Father Patrick. It is, how do these two characters, um, how do they redefine themselves after you know everything they went through? And I think that kind of identity is, is really interesting to explore in a film like this. And, and I think it, it applies to all of us and the things that we go through in our lives. Yeah. And one of the projects that I guess you're working on now, Zenith, is also, it seems to be an exploration of identity. Can you tell yeah. us about that project? Zenith is a project that I've been working on for a lifetime. Um, it was, <laughs> I made a thesis short that's based that's has the same name um, at Columbia. And I became fascinated by the world of Mennonites not that long ago and discovered that there were a couple of ch- black children that were adopted into these rural communities. and Which are it, mostly white communities, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, and 
I, I remember reading an article about a woman who had never left one of these communities and I just was like, how is this possible? Who, how, it, how does she navigate her identity as a black woman in this space? And that's sort of what sent me on the path to just excavating that. Um, and with me having my own issues growing up between three different cultures, because when I moved to the States, I went to a French school. So it was a very strange thing to be in America, but to be in a French school, to be Cameroonian, but not quite Cameroonian. The, the whole like straddling of cultures is something I've had to navigate my entire life. And most of my immigrant friends sort of identify with this. And so I immediately sort of could see myself in this Mennonite world. And I put a lot of my own struggles as a young woman with my identity um, and uh, into that role and um, and found it to be a very fascinating study of the intersection between race, community, and religion. How have you come to terms with your own identity today? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know it's an, it's an always evolving, I think it is anyway. Yeah. Um, we're all kind of always figuring that out. But, but where are you with that now? That's such a good question. I think it takes time to accept who you are. I've I've been so blessed to have good people around me, especially parents who support me and to have a very strong connection with my culture. I think going home, um this this healing or me feeling whole again really started when I went back home to Cameroon back in 2015. And I remember getting off the plane. I, I remember actually the first time I walked around the city, Yaoundé, which is where I was born. I remember that I started to just to cry and I didn't know why I was crying. And it took me a little while to figure out that it was the first time I was in a, in a space where I was not other. Mm. And I felt very deeply that there was finally this, this thing that was missing in me, this hole that was filled. And since then, I'm in, I've just accepted this is my identity. This is I will never not be a Cameroonian woman. And I think that as a kid, when you arrive in America or in, or any other country, there is a desire to immediately assimilate to not be seen as other. And so you're pushing away the things that make you who you are. And that's exactly what happened to me. And I got lost because of that. And so going back to Cameroon reminded me that no, these roots anchor me. They're not, I can't really, I can't separate myself from, from this place. And that was very healing. Yeah. It's, it's funny. It's always about coming home yeah. and accepting the dissociated parts of yourself, it seems. <laughs> the, so in, for folks who don't know, uh, Cameroon, is that um, French and English speaking largely or mostly French speaking? It's I would say mostly French speaking, but also uh, it's probably a 60, 40 or 70, 30 split somewhere in that ballpark. And so that's why you went to a French school. That's when, correct. When you came to the U.S. Yes. Film, as as we all know from the beginning, has been a pretty male dominated and white male dominated mm-hmm. industry. How do you th- how do you think about that fact and and how did you think about that when you were thinking hmm lawyer or filmmaker? 
I mean, I wasn't even thinking lawyer or filmmaker. I was just thinking not lawyer. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it, it's it's daunting because, and this is why representation is such a big thing now. Because if you don't see someone who looks like you doing the job that you want, it's much harder to imagine yourself doing it, right? And so I think the push that's been happening over the last couple of years to have more diverse voices in the room to have more women, um, you know, have the chance to tell stories is so critical. And I feel like I was part of the wave. I started film school in 2013. So that it's, it's around the time that these conversations were being had. Mm -hmm. And I was just lucky that I, I kind of got into filmmaking at the right time and felt, and I have since felt um, that, uh, especially since I graduated in 2017, that that the industry is finally ready to hear my voice. Mm -hmm. And you said earlier that you do see evidence of change. You you do I see do. actual um, diversity happening. Like I do, and it's you know it's not perfect, and it's definitely moving in a lot slower than we'd all like. But I do think there are changes, good changes. Um, happening i've certainly am seeing a lot more opportunity than i would have you know decades ago and i have some of my professors at columbia uh who came up in the 70s and 80s they had virtually no opportunities and i think ageism is a big thing in our industry that we need to address um and uh i certainly am very grateful that i've been given a platform to to, to, to create unique stories from a different perspective. Um, and, um, and I'm certainly taking full advantage of that. What is the project Last Day in Paradise? Last Day, oh my gosh. Last Day in Paradise is a short film that I made in Paris. So when I was at Columbia, I had the privilege of doing an exchange at La Femis, which is the, one of the top film schools in Europe, but certainly the top film school in France. Um, and part of that exchange, um, in that exchange, we uh, were to produce a short film. Uh, it was sort of a workshop. And it was an incredible experience because it not only allowed me to study from a whole different set of, you know, instructors, but to sort of test out and to see what shooting in France looked like. I think if I hadn't had that experience, I don't I don't think that I would have had the the guts to go and shoot my first film in France. Can, okay, so can we go back to Our Father the Devil just yes. for a second? Yeah. There are some shots. This mountain cabin mm. looks like it, it looks like it's you you are in the clouds. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. Did you really shoot this in Luchon? We did. We did. So Luchon is my producer's hometown. His name is Joseph Mastantono. When we, uh, when we were trying to figure out how we were going to make this film, um, he kept asking me, well, where should we shoot? And I said, I don't know, but I just, I know that it needs to be a small town. And I saw mountains because it felt like the kind of place a character like this would hide. And we certainly couldn't afford to go to Switzerland. We didn't have the budget for that. And he said, you know, I'm kind of from a town like this. And that's how we ended up there. It took us a long time to find that cabin. And it was a 40 minute drive up the mountain and so when you literally almost get to the top of the mountain we are sitting on top of that mountain that's why it feels like we're in the clouds <laughs> it's incredible it is incredible yeah that's what it looks like mm. 
So you you directed an episode of Tales for BET. Um, yeah. Bodak Yellow, Cardi B's song on which <laughs> yes. the story is based. Yes. Um, it what? Sorry. Yeah. Go. No, please go ahead. No, I was gonna say it was probably the best. Uh, experience I it was for me the best first episode um because it was it's an anthology series so essentially every episode is reset and uh it's a lot harder because you're you're starting from scratch it's like making a, a mini feature each episode but for me it was the again the right um practice before my feature and it and because every episode looks different and it's really up to you you have creative license as a director to establish the visual language of, of that episode. And that's really a gift. It's pretty rare on television. And so I, I was very, very lucky and very happy to be able to experience that when I did. Yeah. And we have less than a minute, but you, you wrote a Western. <laughs> I did. I wrote a Western, um, that is in development right now. Um, almost everything I have coming is, uh, is dealing with social themes in some way. And um, I can't wait to share. And we're looking forward to seeing more from you. That's this edition of Coastline. Ellie Fumbi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks also to Digital Island Studios in New York City. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fresnel engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. Find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.